very much. Good morning, everyone. It's a blessing to be together with you in the Lord's house. And to those online, welcome to you as well. We are looking forward to continuing on in our series on examining the life of David and digging into his mindset a little bit as he approaches the various events in his life that the Lord ordained that he should undergo. Last, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a couple of psalms, Psalm 56, first of all, and Psalm 34, all flowing out of that event when David flew uh, away from uh, Saul uh, to the strangest possible place you could go. He goes to the enemies of Israel to, to seek refuge there in Gath, finds out that that was not a good idea and then pens a couple of psalms to tell us a little bit about what, uh, what he learned from those experiences. Well, today I'm going to springboard a little bit. This particular Psalm 95 was not written, so far as we know, during that time. At least uh, we don't have any title that tells us that. However, there's a particular section in Psalm 34 that we just touched on a little bit. And I wanted to explore a little bit more the thought of worship. You may remember in Psalm 34, these words, I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in Yahweh. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And so we talked very briefly. I just summarized it as constantly and confidently and corporately coming together in praise of God because and as, as David goes on and talks about the reasons for reverence the reasons that we should fear God and honor him uh, that worship is going to be an outcome of that reverence and will and actually as we worship together it encourages that reverence even more so with that thought in mind, we're going to turn to Psalm 95. And if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 95. A call to worship. Oh, come, let us sing to Yahweh. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord, Yahweh, is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. Now in that verse 6, O come let us worship. Kind of a, a, a 
unifying thought in this psalm. The word worship has the idea of something, well, at the root of it is the idea of weight. Think about that for a minute. Something that is weighed down or to bow down. What does that have to do with, well, the bowing down we get for worship? But what does weight have to do with worship, do you think? How worthy is our God? He's no lightweight. He's, uh, he is infinitely substantial and worth our worship. He is worthy, as we have seen through Psalm 34, and David goes on and gives even more reasons here in Psalm 95 and calls us to come and worship. As, as he calls us to this, he, he gives us an idea of what our worship should look like. Now, there's a few here that were at camp uh, uh, last week. And uh, I make no apology that you're going to hear some of the same stuff that I preached there. Um, this is going to be longer, though. So, here we go. Some really neat stuff here to think about. First of all, verse 1. An, an obvious song. Come, let us sing. We've already done some singing here. And if I asked you, what does this mean, to come sing to the Lord, you would go... Uh, you're kidding, right? We all know what it is to sing. And yet, what's behind this word should change up the way that you think about singing and worship before the Lord. Because behind this word sing uh, in the English is a Hebrew word that means to awake from a stupor. To awake from a stupor or a trance. Now that lends something to our understanding of what we're doing when we're singing. We are not to worship in some sort of general fog of emotion. Uh, in, in many circles today, in contemporary worship, um, charismatic types of worship, one of the goals, stated goals, it's in print in some of the guidebooks that they have, uh, coming out of the Toronto Blessing and folks like things like that in years past, of, of actually singing until people were in enough of a trance that you could do whatever you needed to do. We're to awake out of a stupor. We're to be worshiping with clarity, casting off the mental fog that life in this fallen world can cast over us. The cares of our lives, the the desires of our hearts, the push and pull of, of uh, different priorities that people tell us uh, that, that God has for us without actually referring to His Word. We need to get away from that mental fog and as we worship God, clearly lifting up our voices in song, singing with understanding. I will sing with with the Spirit, but I will sing with the understanding also, Paul says. You know, the idea of, of hymnals is kind of a passing thing in some circles. 
Um, I like hymnals. I like to have the, all the parts there. I mean, I can sing stuff on a projection string, and it's not a screen, and it's not sinful to have a projector and a screen. But it's just um, something about having the weight of those texts in your hand and being able to look at it and give thought to it and meditate upon it even while you're singing. What are these words? Yeah, and some of the words I know, they're, it's an older way of talking, an older way of thinking about it. We have to kind of adjust our thinking a little bit. But the Lord delights in theologically dense worship. Just read the Psalms. So we need to cast off that mental fog, awake from a stupor. And with clarity then in verse 7, today if you hear his voice. Now we're going to talk more about hearing his voice in a minute. Or a few minutes. But for the moment, as we are encouraged to hear God's voice, let's think not so much of where we find that voice. We are going to talk about that in a bit. But the, the manner of our hearing, the manner of our listening. For the moment, as we worship together, worship with an ear that's ready to hear how we are being exhorted by one another, how we're being exhorted by His Word, without any selective hearing. All of you that have children, and in fact, those of you who were at one time children, so that pretty much covers everybody. We, you know what that selective hearing thing is all about, right? And we can do that with God. We can pick out the parts of God that we like and ignore the rest, or even deny the rest that He reveals, because we don't like it. And then we want to worship God according to our selective hearing. According to our Reader's Digest version, our comfortable version of God. And that's how we want to worship. And if we get into those aspects of God's character and, and action that make us feel uncomfortable, well, we don't really want to talk about that. We might kind of have the idea of, well, I know the Bible says this, but... And then we go on to explain why we don't really want to believe that. David calls upon us to actually hear his voice. And, and allow that maybe God means what he says. And worship him in the beauty of that holiness. Fully as he reveals himself. So we are to worship with clarity. Awake out of the stupor. Sing His Word back to Him. Sing His glories back to Him. Sing all of His perfections back to Him with clarity of mind. And not only with clarity, verse 1 goes on to say, as well as verse 2, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. This let us make a joyful noise is a familiar passage to us. Psalm, it's a couple of times in this psalm. Psalm 100, or also familiar with it there, right? Uh, make a joyful noise to, the, to Yahweh, all the earth. So we're going to be talking about worshiping with enthusiasm. 
worshiping with enthusiasm because this phrase joyful noise translates a word that means a shout of triumph or celebration. Now, most shouting is not very melodious, is it? I think sometimes, well, I know this, that if you don't feel like you're a very good singer, you kind of read the words and the mouth moves and maybe there's a little murmur, but we don't want to annoy the person sitting next to us. Well, here's one case where I'm going to tell you, annoy away. Be willing to uh, set somebody's teeth on edge a little bit. As you shout before the Lord with rejoicing and delight at His victory in celebration. You know, when something goes really well, something happens unexpectedly or something that you've been been waiting for and waiting for and hoping it's going to happen and you get the news that something has happened something great and you what do you do oh well, that's really good. isn't that nice is that what we do do we worry about annoying anybody or do we go yes in other words and i speak to those i realize not everybody's uh, we have visitors. Not everybody's Presbyterian here necessarily, but uh, I'll, uh, I, I will acknowledge that Presbyterians have been known as the frozen chosen. Amen. No, not amen. <laughs> There's no room for the frozen chosen in this place. When you sing before the Lord with clarity of mind and heart, when you speak of Him, let it... Now, Okay, with a, maybe a little bit of control. But nonetheless, because we are Presbyterians after all. But let us, let us shout, shall we, please? Enthusiastically praising our God. Holding nothing back. If you can't sing well, sing loud. It's John Wesley and his instructions to churches on singing. Anybody read those? Oh, go look it up. Uh, go Google. It's awesome. Read John Wesley's Rules for Congregational Singing. You find it on find it online. It's easy. But one of the, the my favorite one: sing lustily and with good courage. <laughs> you know, you may think, well, I can't sing really well, but swallow hard, open your mouth, and let it fly, because you are singing to the God of Heaven, who is the Victor who is worthy, weighty, of pra- uh, in order to be praised. Don't mumble in His presence. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter whether you sing well or not. You know what? That's the beauty of congregational singing. Is that if you don't sing all that well, you just kind of blend in and it comes out as a, as a sweet aroma of praise to God. So worship with enthusiasm. Make a joyful noise before the Lord. And then David goes on here with some more reasons. I want you to notice, in, in, it says uh, in verse 2, let us come into His presence with 
thanksgiving. And that summary statement sets the tone for everything else that's going to follow as he starts to talk about who God is and what God has done. So we're worshiping with clarity of mind and heart, uh, submitting to his voice, responding to him in enthusiasm, because we are coming to him with grateful hearts. And that's our next point, to worship with gratitude. And in verses 2 through 7, we see some reasons why. Well, uh, also a little bit in 1B there. He's our rock. You can be grateful that our feet are set upon a firm foundation, and that is He Himself, our God. He has taken us out of the miry clay. He set our feet upon the rock. He's established our goings. That's David in Psalm 40. And what does David then say is the outcome of that? He's put a new song in my mouth. Even praise to our God. Many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. Gratitude that our God has redeemed us and set our feet upon Himself. And that foundation can never be moved. Verse 2, we are coming into His presence. So be grateful that He's present. I mean, think about it for a minute. If we're just sitting here singing to nobody in particular, why are we doing that? Seems like a waste of energy, doesn't it? But if God is present, that's wonderful. You know, we can certainly, in our human relationships, we, we, can, we can praise others that are not present. But it's a lot more meaningful when they are. It's meaningful to them. And it just enhances that sense of gratitude because those, that person cared enough to be there. You know, our God is present with us. He's promised that where two or three are gathered together in his name, he is in our midst. So know your audience. This kind of goes back to the joyful noise comment. You're not singing. In some ways you are singing to each other. There's an exhortation aspect of it. But as far as who you're singing for, it's for God himself. He's your audience. He's the one whose approval you are seeking. Not, not the person sitting next to you. Whether you sing well or not is irrelevant. Whether they uh, approve of your singing is irrelevant. What matters is your ultimate audience, and that's God himself. Be grateful that he is among us, is present with us. And be grateful that He is greater than all. He is a great God. He's a great King above all gods, above all that men pretend are gods, of all powers, of all principalities, of all authorities. He is God over all of it. He is greater than them all. So be grateful for that. Because in that greatness is our safety and our security. Actually, more than just that in this life, but in His greatness, is sealed up our eternity. And be grateful that He's not an absentee God. He is the King. He is the one who holds the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains in His hands. Be grateful that He rules. 
Elder Stu prayed that Satan's hands would be, didn't use these terms, but basically that he would be bound, that he would be limited, that he would be thwarted. We look at the evils of this world, the tragedies that take place. Can you imagine what they would be like if God were not controlling them for his ultimate purposes and good for his creation? If God had just made things and then taken his hands off and said, I'm just spinning it and letting it see, letting it go where it's going to go. He doesn't do that. He holds things in his hands. Be grateful that he rules. And be grateful verses 5 and 6, that He creates. That he made the sea. He formed the dry land. So let's kneel before Yahweh, our Maker. You know, modern science is, uh, is a mess of arrogance and presumption. Artificial intelligence, artificial insemination, artificial um, uh, creation of of uh, cells and artificial this and artificial that, and it's all artificial. Not to say that there aren't some decent things, some good things that might take place in those things, but ultimately. Anything that man makes, the very best that man makes, is a pale shadow compared to what God makes. Man makes computers to replace the human brain. And yet, the most powerful computer cannot do the computations that God's computer does. And we only use 5%. Give or take. Man can't do it. I'm thankful that we are not dependent in this world upon the things that man makes. Because sooner or later they all fail. But God's creation endures as long as He holds it together. And then when He decides it's done, He'll purify it, do away with it, and create again the new heavens and the new earth that can never fall apart ever be grateful that He creates. Be grateful that He is your God. And uh, in this case, the word God here is the word Elohim, which means He's the Almighty One. Be grateful that He has the power to do these things. The power to rule. The power to create. The power to be greater than all things. The power to be present. The power to redeem us. He possesses all power. And so we may rest at peace in Him. And this all power, I love the contrast that's here in verse 7 of He is our Almighty God. And all that that implies as this great, enormous, powerful God in the very next phrase is, we're the sheep of His pasture. Tender, loving, attentive shepherd. Be grateful that He shepherds you. And He does so as your, your 
uh, covenant God, as we kneel before Yahweh, our maker, the all, the almighty one, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. He's entered into covenant with us and he loves us. As you look at this imagery here of the shepherd in his hand, his people, he cares for you. He knows you. One of the things that um, uh, came up when uh, visiting with Greg on one occasion before he came home, um, as we uh, we actually talked about this psalm um, together uh, there in the hospital with him and. And uh, it struck him as we were talking about this section uh, how, how much he had become aware through this circumstance of the stroke and all that God knew him. He said, God knows me. And he just had seen evidence of that and this whole experience and was just blessed by it as he was reminded here in this passage. He, we are his people. He knows who we are. He, he knows the sheep of his hand. And that suggests that you know, he holds us close. It, we're, we're not the, yeah, it's not my flock that's over there. And I kind of know where they are. No, we're the flock that he knows and tends and cares for. And then he says, Today, if you hear his voice, and, and this is very much still within the shepherd imagery, because you think about Jesus' words, my sheep hear my voice. Sheep get to know their shepherds. They get to hear that voice. And they can distinguish it from other shepherds around, even if there are other shepherds and other flocks around, they will know who their shepherd is. And so as the Lord shepherds us, He cares for us, He tends us in His pastures, He keeps us close, He knows us, and He reveals Himself to us. Now, how does the Lord, how, how do we hear the Lord's voice? Well, scripturally speaking, first of all, most ultimately, through the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who declares, I am the Good Shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We know our God and we hear his voice through the words of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his personal ministry to us as the Spirit of God dwells within us. We also hear God's voice through his word. He's given it to us. It is holy. It is infallible. It will not lead you astray. It is inerrant. It is without error or contradiction. It is as full, as complete as God intends it to be for us. And it is within its pages we find there all that is necessary for life and faith. And then we also hear God's word through the preached word as the Spirit of God comes alongside the word when it's declared. We'll talk about one other way in a little bit. But these three primarily, all, as you can tell, centered around 
God's Word, the Logos, that revelation of Himself. Again, as we listen to that verse, let's not have select that voice, let's not have selective hearing. But let us truly delight in the whole counsel of God. And when we come across those passages that we don't particularly care for, um, the problem's not with God, it's with us. We need to humble ourselves before Him and hear His voice. And that brings us to this next section, which actually in this psalm seems like a, a, a bit of a, it's a little jarring. It, it, it's, we've been being called to worship, we've been told how, told how wonderful God is, and then suddenly David switches over to talking about the wilderness wanderings and the rebellion, and it doesn't even seem like at first glance that, that it's really the same psalm. It's like, what's going on here? And yet, I think you'll see it absolutely is. Because as we're called to come to worship with clear minds, enthusiastically, gratefully before the Lord, according to as He has revealed Himself, not as we want Him to be, but as He has declared Himself to be, we are reminded there again, in verse 6, come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before Yahweh our Maker. Worship also needs to be with an attitude of submission. Of submission. Too often, professing believers come to God with their list of demands. And the, I'll worship you if, I'll come to church if, as if they have the right to tell God, what he's supposed to be and what he has the right to demand. Look at uh, the nature of this submission. And, and this submission is taught to us by a negative example. The negative example of Israel in the wilderness. And so in verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and uh, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. So that's from Exodus 17. They were, Israel was fussing against Moses, complaining against God. They weren't getting the water. They, they, they were saying God had brought them out. Moses had brought them out there to kill them in the wilderness and so on. It was complaint and strife. Meribah means strife. Massah means trial. They were putting God to, on trial because he wasn't doing things the way they thought he ought to do them. The word harden is an interesting one. It has the idea of stiffening or being difficult. We might say uh, in uh, common language of today, digging in your heels. Have you ever tried to pull a donkey or a mule that did not want to go in the direction you were pulling it? You know exactly what this word means. Planting it, I don't want to go, I'm not, or a dog going to the, get a bath. <laughs> I just did that yesterday, so it's a fresh image. No. When we worship before the Lord, we need to come 
Not digging in our heels. Not saying, no, that's not the direction I want to go. Not, not uh, thinking that we have a better idea of who God is and we all want to worship Him on our terms. This hardening, this digging in your heels against what God has revealed of Himself is the evidence of an ungrateful heart. And as you can tell from verse 11, that the ungrateful heart only leads to judgment. Beloved, I have to ask you this question. If you don't want to worship, you don't want to make a joyful noise. Why do you think that is? You need to examine yourself whether you're in the faith or not. Are you truly grateful for who he is? Then give a shot. If you're ungrateful, likely the likely uh, scenario is you've got the idol of yourself on the throne. And have convinced yourself that you don't owe God anything. Beloved, you owe him everything. So submit without being difficult. Eagerly submit to him. Even when you don't understand. Also in verse 8, um, in the wilderness there, um, as they're putting God on trial, verse, first part of verse 9, what was the problem there? They were being difficult. They were digging in their heels. They didn't like what was going on. They were striving against God. The problem was they were discontent. So you need to, you need to be the opposite of that. Submitting unto God in your worship without discontent. Or, I could have said, with contentment. But being at peace gratefully with the things that God has given to us. It can be difficult to worship God when our health is bad, when our finances are weak, when relationships are shot, when the other priorities of life that, that are near and dear to our hearts don't seem to be God's priorities. But to be content is a huge indicator of gratefulness for whatever God gives out of His goodness, trusting that He knows what we need when we need it, and being not just okay with that, but being thankful for that and praising Him accordingly. And then kind of along the same lines, a little nuance of this, another little dimension of this in verse 9. They put Yahweh to the test, put Him to the proof Though they had seen my work, Yahweh says. Essentially, what they were doing is demanding that Yahweh prove himself before they would believe and obey and worship. Lord, I'll follow you if. Children sometimes have this attitude with parents. 
well, I'll obey, but if you do this, and children try to put their demands up. None of the kids here ever do that, I'm sure. I know I never did that. But we often come to the Lord with demands, do we not? We're to submit to Him without demands. Unconditional submission. They had seen Yahweh's work. Work of deliverance. Works of provision and salvation and protection and instruction and presence. They had no excuse for rebellion. They had no excuse for silence. And neither do you and neither do I. We are to worship Him with submissive hearts that don't make any demands. The one who makes has the right to make demands is the God of heaven who made us and keeps us. And that's it. We humble ourselves before Him. Again, going back to bowing down and kneeling before Him. Worshiping Him with reverence. And then finally, verse 10. Why did the Lord loathe that generation in the wilderness? Because they were a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known My ways. To submit means we're not desiring to go our own way. Our desires are submitted as well as our actions. Trusting that the Lord knows best for us. Because if we do not um, worship in this way, if we worship with an entitlement attitude, that's essentially... We might be doing some proper things outside, but inside, our hearts are full of rebellion and ingratitude. And rebellion out of ingratitude is, again, the path that leads to judgment and hell itself. Do not be ungrateful. Do not be difficult and demanding in God's presence. But humble yourself before Him. Whatever your God does, the judge of all the earth is right. So worship with that firmly in mind. And then the final thing, I'll run back to verses 1 and 2, and also in 6 and 7, and again, uh, referring back to Psalm 34 as we tie all this together. Worship with others. Worship with others. There's... Uh, in this area, and throughout the West, and I think it's common lots of other places too, but there's a strong independent mindset and there's an aspect of independent thinking that is healthy and good and, and, and helpful to a society. But it's not so good when we try to come before the God of heaven as if we are his only child. Because we are not. He doesn't save. Now hear me out on this. He doesn't just save. I'll put it that way. Maybe that might help a little bit. He doesn't just save individuals. He does save individuals. But He's saving a people to Himself. 
And He desires and has designed His church to be a place where we come together and nurture and build up one another and encourage each other in our faith as we recount to one another and yes, worship together declaring God's glories because there are certainly days I'm sure you can attest to in your own life when you wonder where God is and wonder what He's doing and wonder why you're going through this mess. And hearing the praises of God's people, the testimony of God's people, gets you back on track, helps you remember who this God is and what He's done and, and, and sets you back on that rock again. And so that's why over and over through the Psalms, let, let, and, in, and in this one, did you notice six times in this Psalm, let us sing, let us make a joyful noise, let us come, let us make a joyful noise, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel. Three times, our God, our King, He is ours. And then He does you, we, once as well. In these few verses, over and over and over again. Um, the only time he says the word I is when he's quoting God who is speaking of his loathing of that generation. Our worship is to be corporate. To be complete, it must be done together as a body. God reveals his weightiness, his worthshipness in the ways that we spoke of before through the living word, Lord Jesus Christ, through the written word and the, the, the preached word. But furthermore, his worthiness is expressed through the grateful corporate voice of the saints, which is why Paul commands us, exhort one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace and praise in your hearts to the Lord. So worship, not just on your own. There's a, there's a time and place for worship in your prayer closet at home alone before the Lord, but then take that and magnify it and multiply it by coming together with the saints as He commands us to do and lift up our voice in worship. There's no place in the Scriptures, in God's economy for Lone Ranger Christians. We need to be united to Him within the visible church. So, David calls you and me to express God's immensity with grateful, enthusiastic hearts and voices. We have every reason to do so. So as Paul uh, cites in Ephesians chapter 5, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Come and worship together in the beauty of holiness. Hold nothing back. Do nothing for vainglory of your own, but all to the glory of our God and King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this precious passage where you instruct us and guide us as to how you would have us come into your presence. Lord, truly, wake us up. 
Help us to see you as clearly as we possibly can with our human eyes and understanding. And let our voices ring out with shouts of triumph for you are victorious. Lord, we bless you and humble ourselves before you and desire that you alone be glorified because of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray.